I'm back. It's back. This is Not So Common with Pat Contry, the podcast where I, Pat, will talk about whatever I really want to outside the gaming world, whether it's social, political, financial, sports, whatever, whatever I want to. Welcome back. It's been a while for sure. The last regular Not So Common podcast was December of 2018, the last bi-weekly episode. So it's been four years and three, four months. Wow. I was still in my 30s back then. How are you doing out there? On this show, we'll be talking about what's new with Pat, news time with Pat, what's pestering Pat, and you talk to Pat. That's how I'm going to segment up these episodes that are solo. However, if you remember the Not So Common podcast of the past, I also had guests. Guests like Metal Jesus Rocks, my pal Norm, the gaming historian, Gerard, the completionist, and more. So I will probably have guests from time to time, depending upon the schedule. In terms of how often the podcast will happen, Not So Common podcast, it'll be up to my schedule, what's going on. I'm hoping for at least once a month. But who knows? It might be more. It might be less. That's my reality in 2023. So the originally, originally it went away because the CU podcast, the completely unnecessary podcast, which just ended its weekly run, but will still be back for specials, including one coming up in the next week or two, that started to go weekly. So therefore, it was pretty hard to do a weekly podcast with a lot of work. And also doing a solo podcast at the same time. Something had to give. But now it's back. It's a lot simpler to do on top of it. A lot less editing. A lot less behind the scenes work. <laughs> and I like to I like to speak. I like to talk. That's what I get from my mom. My mom likes to talk. I like to talk. And I get my, my chubby cheeks and hair from her as well. So what's been going on with Pat? What's new with Pat? That's the segment. I'm already screwing up my segment names. But what's new with Pat? Well, I've been working on a certain N64 guidebook every day, literally, for the past 20 days. And I expect that to happen for another 40 days, at least, if not 50 or 60 days. Because the light is dim, but it is at the end of the tunnel. The N64 book was conceived, well, after after the Super Nintendo book came out, pre-pandemic in uh that was september or october of 2019 the idea was to either do the game boy book or the n64 book and i I really it was 50 50 because game boy still has the 8-bit aesthetic sprite based the emulation for that system is is perfect however the library is gigantic even black and white it's about a thousand games if not more i believe and then um on top of that, you have the issue of people not really being nostalgic for the Game Boy at all. So what is the ROI there? What is the return on investment? It's, it's kind of tough to dedicate two, three years to a book and then not have it sell well, which was the huge risk of the NES book, obviously. I had no idea how well it would sell. It was all my money and time investment to see what would happen. And I could have sold only 50 copies or 100. So Game Boy, if I knew there was going to be an audience for it, and if the library was smaller, that would have been the logical next step. However, N64, while it presents its own issues, horrible emulation, the fact that you now have a aesthetic that's not in vogue anymore with the polygonal 3D style, 
that that was, is not considered retro. No game is made looking like you know really Ocarina of Time or Mario sixty four. That's passe at this point. Besides that, you have the challenge of the emulation, the challenge of the writers being able to review in that time and space, not not having in the back of their head, oh, this looks dated or this is a dating a dated uh, a playing style or gaming style. Like, you have a lot of these challenges, but the library is smaller. 300 North American and PAL, then then 100 Japanese exclusive included the 10 DD. So I decided I'm going to be crazy. Why why have an easy year or two of my life ever? We're going to do every single game and treat them all equally, a full page per game. So with that said, there's been a lot of hiccups, to put it very, very mildly, so much so that I can probably do eventually a 45-minute or hour video just on what has gone wrong behind the scenes of the N64 book. All the pitfalls, all all the obstacles, all the uh, issues with certain individuals who will not be named at this point that have, uh, if not sabotaged the book, uh, explicitly contributed to it being delayed for about a year. So that said, the book will still come out and the book will be better, in fact, potentially because of these delays that have been uh, put into the production time. It's given us an opportunity, me and the new editing team, a chance to basically re-edit the entire book at least once, if not twice. So that means more accurate reviews, uh, more information that's coherent, better writing, better screenshots, and an all-around better book for everyone. That's the good news. The bad news is that it's been stressful every, almost literally every day. The book has been in my mind since June of 2020. Uh, 20 when it was decided that this is what we're going to do going forward. Probably before that, April or May, I think it was when I got there, it started to get the original writers back and started to uh, put feelers out for editors and things like that. So at some point, this project has to end, and that's going to be this year. By hook or by crook, that, that old expression, that's going to end this year. So the book has been heck, but life has been okay. Life's been okay. I've been relaxing more, and I have been, uh, you know, exercising making sure my stress levels have been okay and thinking about new ventures and things I cannot talk about there. I mean, I have at least two long-term projects in the works that I cannot talk about and maybe a third, maybe a fourth. They're not all going to eventually be made public, but some will. What is interesting about putting yourself online and having thousands of people, tens of thousands, uh, watch you or consume your content is that there's always a percentage of them that think, because they watch you, they think they know everything about your life and what you're doing. No, no, no. Content producers, you like call them influencers. Ian hates that term. I kind of understand it, but it's still kind of weird. Content creators slash influencers show you what they want to show you. They present the side of their lives that they want to. There's a whole – this is one room in my, in my house in Castle Country. There's a whole bunch of other rooms out there that you will never see in a video unless I, I choose to show you. There are aspects of my life you will never see unless I choose to show them for the most part. Like That's how it works here in terms of, of content creators. So there is a private life to all of us. Even those content creators that might look at you and say, hey, you know every part about my life, you never, almost never will. With that said, this is something I want to announce. That is non-gaming related that I hinted at in previous videos. I am officially 
a production partner of an off-Broadway musical that is coming on May 4th in New York City at the Players Theater. Con a parody Trectacular. 20 showings from May 4th to June 4th. You can pre-order tickets online at theplayerstheater.com. That's theater, so T-R-E-A-T. This, uh, this is from Playbill. It's Con the Musical, a parody Trectacular. Playbill, you know, they have the yellow banded. If you ever see a musical in your life, there's a Playbill little magazine, mini thing that they give to you. It tells you about the advertisements of other musicals and what's coming out. Well, this is the online Playbill. This is what they said about it. The human adventure is just beginning, and Con the Musical is coming. The musical, which is an irreverent parody of Star Trek True, the Wrath, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and Star Trek The Next Generation, will boldly venture off Broadway beginning May 4th, beaming into the Players Theater. Set in 2366 and the time frame of Star Trek The Next Generation, Khan is a camp-heavy exploration of Data the Android's attempt at adapting the history of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, into a musical, resulting in a comedic mixture of William Shatner impressions, mutant space chickens, and Vulcan tap dancing. The coming of middle-aged story remains mostly true to the original film, with the sci-fi silliness turned up to 11. This is co-written, composed, and features lyrics by my pal Brent Black. You might know him as Brentlefloss. I've been friends with Brent for over 10 years, uh, probably 2010-11 is when I met him. And then, of course, we collaborated in 2012 on Nintendo Hemium Rhapsody, the only video I ever did that truly went viral at the time where it got shared all over the place. So so I've seen uh, the musical in, we'll say, smaller production form where it's everyone basically using a few mics in one room. So Brent's been working on this musical and refining it for the past several years. And I'm super proud of him. He's he's a musical genius to me. You can see that in his Brennan Floss work, and it's an honor that I, I've had a chance to be a production partner and help bring this to life for hopefully more than one run. Hopefully, this is the start of uh, of other runs. So, if, you know, check it out. Check it out if you're in New York City or around New York City from uh, May fourth to June fourth. It's I think it shows every Thursday to Sunday. So you got like was that four days a week? You got right there to see it. And like I said, that's part of that's part of the external YouTube life that if I didn't tell you about that, you would never probably have known or guessed that. That's what's interesting about putting yourself out there. And, and Brent, like me, we sought creative outlets outside of, of YouTube. And that's why when I talk to Brent, our personalities may be a lot different. Um, political beliefs may not always line up. But in terms of who we are, in terms of um, in terms of our aspirations, there's a lot of parallels. I did the book same time he started working uh, just about on the user words, uh, video game party game that did very well. So we both sort of off, we shot off of YouTube at the same time to do other things and have carried forth with that. He's not on YouTube as much as I am anymore, but we both started on YouTube. We both had, we had uh, training outside of YouTube and other avenues. I'm a little bit older than him. I got some years on him, but that's how our careers have gone. So again, I'm super proud of him for that. And taxes are terrible. That's what's new. Taxes. Two-hour tax meeting Oh, with my tax person last week. Taxes are terrible. I mean, it's never fun to do taxes unless you got, you know, unless you got, you know, that TurboTax freebie thing 
where, you know, if you're a salaried employee, that's, I wish I was a salaried employee almost just for the taxes because you get, you get your W, you get your, what is it, your W-2, right? Um, you, you get that stuff going on. You get your, ta- you get your, hey, this is what you made. This is what you paid. You put that in. Boom, you're done. Standard deduction. What am I? Uh, single household, head of household, uh, couple, and, and you're done. Number of dependents. And most people can do their taxes in like 10 minutes. Not when you're self-employed. Not when you run your own business. <laughs> you can't do that. Not when you have itemized deductions out the wazoo. But uh, yeah. Yeah, so that's fun. So I'll be, I'll be, uh, I'll be owing about as much as I prepaid, I think. So when you, when you're self-employed or run your own business, you have to prepay on top of when you take a salary and things like that. So you have to like prepay because the government wants their money up front as a, like as a salary employee, when you, when you pay throughout the year, the government wants you to do that with, if you're self-employed, cause they want the money now, they want to use it now. They want to make interest now. So if you don't, You'll get penalized. You'll you'll pay interest on what you owed, and sometimes you get a penalty on top of that. Say if you owe, um, you know, say you owe twenty thousand dollars. Maybe I might have owed that much one year. If you don't pay that throughout the year or pay it up front, they'll like hit you with well, well, there's a penalty on top of that. So it stinks. It stinks. Uh, there's no reason why our tax code is so arcane and so complex to benefit mostly the wealthy and mostly big businesses. Because that's the way it's written by Congress. Because the whole uh, tax lobby is, besides the corporations, the, the, the tax lo- uh, lobby groups, uh, you know, all, all your TurboTax, H&R Block, there's whole industries based upon our tax code being so freaking complex and so hard to understand and deal with for the average person. There's no reason why I have to pay the amount of money I pay to do my taxes every year and others have to. But it's a whole business, the same reason why there's a whole business for, for, for insurance, for medical insurance. Whole, whole huge, these industries don't exist in, in most civilized countries except for the U.S. These, these gigantic, you know, you go to other countries, you're not going to see like H&R Block commercials before tax time. Other countries, they tell you how much you owe. And a lot of times, okay, that's how much I owe and that's it. Like they, they know. Like this is insane. <laughs> this is insane how we operate. On both fronts, but what are you going to do, right? What are you going to do? I guess I can move away, and, and you can always move away, and you can um, disavow your citizenship. And that's the only way you can get out of paying federal taxes. And some people end up doing that; they, they live elsewhere and they, they hand in their passport and say they'll say they'll say I'm no longer a citizen, and that's the only way out. Death and taxes, the two guarantees uh, in life. So this was is also what's new. This is a little bit humorous, maybe. So I shop at good old Sprouts once a week. I shop for my groceries. So last week on the way home and driving. And thankfully, uh, my car wheel doesn't, doesn't get stuck anymore because the week or two before, it got stuck driving 35 miles an hour because I didn't realize how low my power steering fluid was. Check your power steering fluid every now and then. It was like less than half of what it should be. But anyway, that aside, I didn't kill anyone. I didn't get killed. I filled it up. I ordered it off Amazon. So I'm driving home on the same road where my wheel locked up a week before. I get a call from Frank. Your pal, my pal, Frank. Patrick, I need help. It's an emergency. In all my years of knowing Frank, I've never heard him utter those words in my life. 
I've never heard him say it's an emergency and I need help. Like with that tone of voice, like I was driving and I was ready to like veer off and like, you know, you turn and go towards his house. The way he said these words to me, I need help. It's an emergency with like a little slight quiver in his voice. I'm like, Oh my God, did he hit his head? All these things flashed in my head instantly. Oh my God, did Frank hit his head? Did he break his arm? Did he break his leg? What the hell happened? Was there a break in? Like, like what happened? What happened? You go through, when someone says those words, it's an emergency and I need help. You, at least I think the worst. I think the worst. Like, this going to be a hospital trip at least that's going to happen. Thankfully, the next words out of his mouth were, I can't turn my TV on. I don't know what happens. I can't turn my TV on. So instant relief. But then you're realizing you're you're talking to someone over 70, getting up to the elderly age, who isn't keen on technology. So I'm like, okay. This is during the day, by the way. So Frank wasn't working. So during the day, I understand he wants to watch his NCAA wrestling and maybe the tournament, maybe ESPN. So at first, I'm like, okay. What happened? Well, I was fixing, uh, I was, he said, I was fixing my CD changer. He has one of those revolving CD changers that has five or six CDs. I was trying to fix that. I was disconnecting things. And me, me and uh, the guy I know, we moved the TV. And then a plug came out. The HDMI came out. I tried to put it back in, but the HDMI was damaged. I was like, what was I? slow down, slow down, slow down. You're telling me too much. Okay. I said, the HDMI cable is damaged, right? He goes, yeah, it's all, it's all, it's all bent. Depends on my. Okay, I said, fine. I said that's a different issue. I said, HDMI is a video uh, signal. That's a video cable. That has nothing to do with your TV turning on or off or not. That's what you see on the screen. And then he tried to say, yeah, I know. I turned my cable box on and everything else. I'm like, okay, I said, slow down, slow down. Let's stick with the TV. The TV is not turned on. That means there's probably no power getting to the TV. He goes, yeah, well, that's the HDMI cable. No, no, no. It's not the HDMI cable. H, again, the HDMI is video only. He's like in a slight panic over this, over the TV not being turned on. I said, no, this is a power issue. Let's start with I said, the HDMI cable being messed up. That's an issue itself, but that's a smaller issue. I, I think at this point in time, I'd given him an HDMI cable just to have an extra one, like a longer one. Instead of like the three two foot ones that come with you know your the VCR or Blu-ray player or whatever, so he has another one. That's fine. I said, okay, is it plugged in? Is it plugged in the TV? And he couldn't answer me. Like he couldn't answer me. He was so focused on the HDMI cable being messed up that I was just, like, is it plugged in? He said, well, we disconnected some things. I'm like Frank. He said, he said, can you come help me? Frank said it to me. I said, I was literally rushing home to put my groceries away and do and do a meeting on a project I can't tell you about that hopefully will happen. I said to him, well, I have, I, I have some stuff to do. I have to work maybe in a few hours. I can come over and help you. Knowing in my head that if it's the issue, I think it is within, uh, within 12 minutes, Frank should be able to figure it out. And it won't be wasting my time to go over to fix something that will be easy. Plus, it's not a real emergency. It's a TV not being turned on. So I said to him, give me a few hours. Then I'll get back to you. And so, I, again, I'm talking to him on the phone as I'm driving, hands-free. I have a little cradle for it, so I'm not being super bad. I was like, just make sure. I said, find the power outlet. Make sure it's plugged in. You know, make sure that your, your surge protector is on. Go through all that, and it's probably the power. 
And it's like, okay, Frank, I'll talk to you later. All right. So uh, within 20 minutes, 25 minutes, I looked down at my phone, the text, I figured it out. So it was, I think, I think they disconnected an AC, uh, the AC uh, dongle, like the three prong, whatever from the TV, probably a three prong on the end. And they must've tried to connect another one back in. That wasn't that maybe it was for another device he had. Maybe it was for his, um, his amplifier. And so he couldn't turn the TV back on. So that's life when you talk to someone who doesn't know technology. But Frank, I like I love Frank, but he'll get pissed at you when you try to explain technology to him because he, he, he doesn't like to feel like you're talking down to him. But in the same vein, he will call you saying it's an emergency when his TV can't be turned on because it's not plugged in. So, so that's my funny, funny story of the week. That's what's new with Pat. Now, news time with Pat. Hopefully these little... Bumpers are nice. I don't know. We'll work on it. This was big in the news recently. Jonathan Majors was arrested. Jonathan Majors is shooting, shooting star, famous actor the past uh, five, five, six months. I mean, he obviously he was around before that, probably doing, doing theater and doing smaller movies. But you're talking the big villain in Creed 3, the big villain Kang in Ant-Man uh, three, which was, uh, and then now is going to be the centerpiece of the next Avengers movies, uh, plural. So he's the basically the next Thanos playing Kang, and was also playing a version of a variant, a variant on Kang in the Loki miniseries. So this person in the past two years has shot to the stratosphere, in two of the biggest movies so far of the year, and was arrested recently. Uh, after, this is from Matt Stevens, New York Times. The actor Jonathan Majors was arrested on Saturday in Manhattan and charged with assault and harassment after what the police in New York described as a domestic dispute. The victim, described only as a 30-year-old woman, was taken to the hospital after suffering what the police said were minor injuries to her head and neck. Representative for Mr. Majors, uh, looks like a lawyer of some sort, wrote that Mr. Majors was a victim of an altercation with a woman he knows, that the woman had recanted the accusation, and that video evidence of witnesses supported his account. Mr. Majors is innocent entirely innocent and did not assault her whatsoever, the statement said. All right. I'm not going to get into it all. His guilt or his innocence, whether the evidence looks good or not, that's not what my conversation is going to be about. We'll see We'll see what happens with that. The conversation is going to be about what happens, as in we have seen with Ezra Miller, but this to a larger degree, what happens when a, when a gigantic corporation puts all their trust financially and creatively in an, in an individual and it can go belly up? What happens? As we've seen with Ezra Miller and all their legal issues, weird shit happening in Hawaii. Uh, there's, there are allegations of, of grooming a minor, allegations of uh, breaking in into someone's house, stealing alcohol getting thrown out of bars, all weird shit happening with someone that's now going to be the major star of a of a film that costs like $300 million. And how do you navigate the PR nightmare that that could be? Besides, you when you have a movie that then will branch off into potential sequels, and then it's a catapult for potentially other movies in your universe that can cost you tons of money. 
In this case, Jonathan Majors is going to be the villain for the whole phase. I, I think it's phase five of the MCU. I, I, the phases are confused at this point with me. But it's going to be the villain in at least two other movies. Uh, what is it going to be? Uh, the, the Kang Dynasty and then uh, Secret Wars. At least two movies. This is the, the actor is going to be the big bad villain. That was already been a big bad villain in one. That this potentially happens. Where, oh my God, if you are Kevin Feige, if you're the, the people on the board of directors at Disney, you have a heart attack. Because in one actor, you have literally billions of dollars in the balance between the cost of each of these movies is uh, hundreds of millions of dollars between production and marketing. And then obviously their success then leads to potential success of the future films. So you are banking on all these individuals to be in your movies and that they don't mess up like Ezra Miller, Ezra Miller has, but they're still starring in their flashpoint movie, which I might go to, I might go to see that. I might go see that because of Michael Keaton and, and other seeing Baffleck for the last time, <laughs> the disaster that is the, the DCU at this point. But this came up recently as well. The situation with John Morant, star of the Grizzlies, Memphis Grizzlies, one of the top 10 NBA players, super young, 23 years old, potentially the face of the league in the future. Uh, stories come out, multiple stories, verified stories, where there was a red laser pointed at the Indiana Pacers after a game in Memphis from a card that John Morant was in with his friends, uh, confronting a mall security guard because something might have happened between the security guard and his mother with a bunch of people potentially uh, uh, allegedly flashing a gun uh, to a teenager at the court nearby where John Morant lives. And then John Morant going on Instagram live. If if you didn't know that after a loss to the Denver nuggets in Denver in a strip club, a gentleman's club or whatever you call it, holding up a pistol, holding up a firearm live for everyone to see. Not good decisions to make if you are a young superstar with a lot on the line. Like his shoe from Nike was set to launch, a signature shoe. He had a whole Powerade campaign set to launch. The first time Powerade was working with an NBA player, I believe it was going to be like four or five or six years. There's so much money on the line when you are when you when you have others invested in you huge multinational corporations, millions and hundreds of millions of dollars riding on the line with this. This, like the NBA is a multi-billion, I mean, what's the NBA worth? A few hundred billion dollars? Half a trillion? Could you put a value on what the NBA is even worth? I have no idea. If you could, we'll just say it's 200 billion. It's not half a trillion, but it's probably a 200 billion dollar company. One of your rising stars, young star that you want to bank on for the next 15 years, because that's all the NBA is. It's, it's, it's stars. You watch the stars. That's what the draw is. There's a reason why Stephen Curry, uh, you know, why the Warriors franchise used to be worth almost nothing, and now it's worth a, a few billion dollars, because Stephen Curry, he's the number one person selling uh, jerseys uh, b- besides winning. We all love little Steph Curry. But what was interesting about the John Moran story when it happened, he was suspended for eight games. A lot of people said he should suspend for the rest of the season. I thought eight games was super light 
uh, due to the circumstances of how he got suspended and, and the the CBA, the collective bargaining agreement saying you're not allowed to bring guns. You know, when you travel with the team, you can't have them in the locker room. I thought that he got a slap on the wrist. I thought that they would have suspended him for the rest of the season, like a 20-game suspension, and he'd be lucky to see the playoffs again. That said, when this happened, Carmelo Anthony, uh, he's out of the league right now, but future Hall of Famer, used to be on the Nuggets, coincidentally, and then he went to the Knicks. Uh, when there was a there was a brawl that happened, I think it was 2006 or so, David Stern, the commissioner at the time, who was who was not the nicest guy to deal with. Uh, if, if this John Morant stuff happened with David Stern, whoo boy, uh, John Morant might be uh, out of the league for the for a whole year potentially, if not if at least half a year. But David Stern, Carmelo Anthony says on a podcast uh, when David Stern talked to him, but he said, "Hey, you got a decision to make. What are you going to be? You want to be a superstar in the league and make tons of money?" Or you want to you know, do what you're doing with the behavior right now and run around with a bad crowd. So basically, David Stern said to Carmelo, I'm going to paraphrase, we know what you do. We know where you go. We know who your boys are. We know who you see. We know what drugs you do. We know everything about your life. That's what David Stern said to Carmelo Anthony. <laughs> well, you think about it, it makes sense. If, if, you, have, if you have a company... That's worth, like I said, uh, hundreds of billions, billions of dollars. Well, back then when David Stern was running it uh, 15, 16 years ago, it wasn't worth nearly as much. It's exploded the past 10 years, even way more than what it was then. You have to know what your stars are doing. Absolutely. So he was probably tailing Carmelo with off-duty police officers um, or maybe ex-police officers, ex-FBI agents, private investigators. So what I'm saying is this. I wonder if Disney has the same sort of policy going on with their major actors that they're not sure about. Like so, someone like an actor has been around like Don Cheadle. Don Cheadle's not going to do anything to harm Disney probably or the company. He's been around forever. Jonathan Majors is, is an upstart. He's new. I think he's, he's 33. Hasn't been in like he hasn't been a major celebrity for that long of time, like a year or two. I wonder if Disney, if they haven't done it already, just to make sure that their investments are protected. They're huge movie franchises, theme parks, uh, merchandising, if I can quote uh, yogurt from Spaceballs. I wonder if they're going to start to do this. Maybe these actors, you won't know about them, but they're going to look into you. They're going to know about your friends, what you do who you are, like beyond like an FBI background check, they're going to know everything you do. I mean, these are huge companies. I mean, Disney's worth Disney's worth a, uh, a trillion dollars or half a trillion at least. I mean, NBA is in, but Disney probably is. Do you think Disney now, this hasn't shaken them? What happens if, not saying it's going to happen, what happens if Jonathan Majors, if these allegations are true, Jonathan Major, Majors is, goes to prison for something? Goes to prison. Let's just say even for two years. That wrecks several movies. It wrecks TV shows on Disney+. Plus. It wrecks so much money that D- Disney potentially has to look at that they can't, let th- they can't allow this to happen. They, they would have to have, they would have to, if this, if, like, if say Majors gets arrested, or another actor that's in a movie franchise, you would have to have like um, written that out multiverse stuff either way it's awkward and it's a mess 
and it makes you look bad. Already, this is a huge PR scandal, even if he's found not to do anything. And again, I'm not talking about his innocence at all. Well, then he has. If he's found not to do anything, the damage via social media is still tremendous at that point. Because some people never get past the original headline. That happened famously with the, you know, the whole Amber Heard versus Johnny Depp thing where, God, several years it, it's taken Johnny Depp to try to regain some of his reputation besides all the losses and everything. So all I'm saying is this. If you work for Disney and there's a, a billion dollars on the line, $2 billion on the line, you, you might be looking over your shoulder and seeing some people in trench coats following you around. <laughs> or they might be talking to the people you know to make sure that everything's okay. Man, the memes, the, the Kevin Feige memes, what he must have been thinking, look at, looking at his phone, social media, and be like, oh, wow, yeah, he was just uh, uh, a major actor in uh, at least a few of our films coming up. He got arrested by the NYPD. Boy, that's not, a good, that's not a good day for the mouse. That's not a good day. There was a tornado in Southern California recently. And this isn't going to be going to say it's never happened before. This is all due to climate change. It probably is due to climate change a little bit, at least. But it's very rare for it to happen. This is from the East Bay Times. Uh, the writer on this article is Emily Holzhauser. This happened on March 22nd. I saw videos of this. It ripped off roofs of buildings. It, it, I don't know if it demolished buildings. I didn't see the footage of that. But it was a tornado. It was, this wasn't just like a little dust bowl somewhere uh, where, where you had to like probably get out of your house and run. You probably had to run away. Uh, it was an F1 tornado. That's a tornado. Happened at 11 a.m. in the morning. Winds from 86 to 110. Strongest to hit L.A. since the 80s. So uh, tornadoes are ranked on the enhanced Fujita scale. So now it's an EF1 which uses the amount of damage a tornado inflicts to measure possible wind speed and other attributes. So EF0 is a light tornado, EF5, F5, finger of God, is winds of 200 miles an hour plus. That's the ones that will destroy entire neighborhoods and you won't see anything, like everything's gone. Um, yeah, I'm looking at pictures of it. Oh, yeah, it took, took roofs off of buildings. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Imagine being in L.A. and you see that, or outside of L.A., Wow. Damaged 17 buildings, uprooted a tree, snapped the power pole. One person was injured. It's fortunate that it wasn't worse than that. There have been 44 tornadoes in L.A. County between 50 and 21. Wow, that's more than I thought would think. So that's an average Pat Math, one every uh, almost two years. One every Pat Math, uh, 18 months, something like that, year and a half. Uh. I'm guessing they're usually the smaller EF zeros where it's 65 to 85 miles an hour. It's not going to destroy everything or take off roofs. March 83, an EF2 injured 30 people, plowed through South LA. Man. Um, So this was interesting looking this up was that another one also occurred in California. That's what was so weird. Another one occurred Northern California around the same time. So that was interesting when I was reading about that. Wow. Wow. Well, I'm not going to be the one to, I'm not ringing the alarm that this is due to climate change, but if this starts happening every year, every six months or so, oh yeah. One just happened in Jersey again in February. 
when I was growing up, there were you heard about tornado warnings. You never heard. I never heard of any damage. And we, we would get hur- like tropical storm like slash hurricanes. The remnants of those would hit us because you're on the East Coast. You're going to be hit with that. I guess that's the one good thing about the West Coast. You you don't get you get massive earthquakes, but you don't get hurricanes usually. But I guess now you can get tornadoes. But that tornado from last year, uh, from two years ago, that we I remember we spoke about it on on, on the CU podcast. I think mean, a little bit. There was that tornado a couple of years ago in New Jersey. I think it was Mercer County, which is South Jersey, where it leveled it leveled a neighborhood. Where I was in shock when I heard about it. I said, "Jersey, Jersey, Jersey." That happened, and I was in shock when I heard that. Uh, let me look this up real quick. I should have had this prepared. My apologies. Mercer County tornado, hundred and ten to hundred and fifteen miles an hour. Oh no, that was the one. That was the one last month. Oh, okay. Well, there was one two years ago that people literally were scared for their lives. That happened, and when I saw that, I'm like, okay. If I'm in Jersey and this happens, and uh, something's going on, something's going on. If, if you if your house can be destroyed by a tornado in, in Jersey, something's up. That should not be occurring naturally. So, like I said, one is not a pattern. Two is a pattern. Where you're getting two bad tornadoes in, what is that, two years' time? Between 2001, yeah, it's two years. Just like people freezing to death now every year in Texas, where that was unheard of before. And now it's like, well, well, extreme, extreme uh, weather happening now every year, just about. That's not, that's not, uh, it's not natural. It's not, it's not normal, I should say, not natural. We'll see. But when I see Jersey tornado stuff, that's to me, I'm like, I can't get over that. I can't get over that. Look up that one that happened a couple years ago. That hit. I really honestly thought it was uh, maybe the same county. The one recently displaced close to 75 people. Messed up homes. Man. Tornado in Jersey. That's nuts. I thought this was interesting. This is something I've kind of thought about in a way about how social media has affected us long term. How it's affected people that have grown up with it. How, how kids are going to be as adults when they grow up at three and four and five with tablets and and cell phones glued to their hands. I'm going to sound like old man Boomer Pat right now. I'm, I'm an ex-lennial, cross-lennial, either old millennial or super young Gen X. There's, a, there's an ex-lennial thing. Uh, this is from a Teen Vogue article. Uh, someone named Philip Lewis tweeted a, an excerpt from this. A YouTube star who went viral as a toddler talks about the resentment she feels towards her parents who told her she had to keep making videos so they could maintain their lifestyle. Influence her parents and the kids who had their childhood made into content. Teenvogue.com. The article is from, uh, let's see, for Tessa Latifi did the article. It's a long article. I skimmed it. Uh, Talks to people specifically who are moms of people with millions of TikTok followers and YouTube followers. And this didn't exist 10 years ago like this or started to exist. But you couldn't really monetize well on YouTube until 10 years ago is when it really started. 11, when when they opened up MCNs really to everyone, to corporations like uh, Machinima and the other awful ones that existed back then. You have children that were children then that yes that could be adults now they're teenagers they're young adults what if you're an 8 year old 
that had a camera thrown in front of your face. Remember Daddy-O-5? Those garbage parents, or at least one of the kids was taken away because they would literally film, quote, pranks of them humiliating their children and uh, emotionally abusing them, sometimes physical abuse through the other children. Those, you think those kids are going to like their parents when they're older? You think they're going to look back and be like, what the hell did my parents force me to do because they realized they were getting hundreds of thousands of views and money? Like, what, what happened? Chickens are going to come home to roost. And in this case, uh, from this individual who's not named, it's come home. Claire, whose name has been changed to protect her privacy, has never known a life that doesn't include a camera being pointed in her direction. Ugh. The first time she went viral, she was a toddler. When the family's channel started to rake in the views, Claire says both her parents left their jobs because the revenue from the YouTube channel was enough to support the family and to land them a nicer house and new car. That's not fair that I have to support everyone, she said. I try not to be resentful, but I kind of am. Once she told her dad she didn't want to do YouTube videos anymore, and he told her they would have to move out of their nice house and her parents would, would have to go back to work, leaving no money for, in quotes, nice things. When the family is together, the YouTube channel is what they talk about. Claire says her father has told her he may be her father, but he's also her boss. It's a lot of pressure, she said. When Claire turns 18 and can move out of her on her own, she's considering going no contact with her parents. Once she doesn't live with them anymore, she plans to speak out publicly about being the star of a YouTube channel. Whew. She'll even use her real name. Claire wants people to know how her childhood was overshadowed by social media stardom that she didn't choose. And she wants her parents to know nothing they do now is going to take back the years of work I had to put in. Work. Forcing your child to work. Child labor laws. Where are they at? Where are they at? This is nuts. But I guess it can happen. So there's something for young actors called the, the, uh, the Coogan Law. The Coogan Law is in place because it requires, it's for protection for the children so their parents don't rob them. Because back in the day, when uh, child actors would get robbed by their parents sometimes, and the, and the kids uh, had no, what are you going to do? You're not, you're, you're, not, you're not legally, you can't fight for yourself. Your parents are in charge. They're, they're guardians. So the law governs, the. it's a California law that most states probably now have in place, something similar, governs their earnings and creates a fiduciary relationship between the parent and the child. This law in California requires that 15% of all minors' earnings must be set aside in a blocked trust account, commonly known as a Coogan account. It means if I make money as a, a child actor, you're going to put, put aside at least some of the money so that I see it when I get older as an adult when I turn 18. It's a great law. Unfortunately, kids got ripped off. Kids still get ripped off. It's sometimes you hear about things from the parents, the whole uh, guardianship thing, or, or Stuart, uh, what's the thing with Britney Spears that happened where she didn't have legal ownership of herself, and finally getting that over, overturned the past years. There's bad people out there, and unfortunately, a lot of bad people are parents. Good kids have, uh, good, good parents, or, or good people have kids to become parents, and unfortunately, a lot of bad people have kids. And they are bad people to those children and mistreat them. So this this postulates this article that we need a Coogan's Law for young influencers. There's the word influencers. Young TikTok stars, young YouTube, young social media stars, they need protection as well. That right now, unfortunately, sounds like it's not happening. This sounds terrible. 
I guess in the past when you were a kid, you just had to worry about the old, uh, I don't know, uh, emotional abuse potentially from a parent or uh, emotional neglect or physical abuse. God forbid that would happen to someone. It's probably happened to some of you listening out there, one form or another, emotional abuse, physical abuse, or a combination. As a kid, that's what you had to worry about without uh, a cell phone being in your face or a, a video camera being thrown in your face every day of your life. This sounds horrifying. Horrifying. The weird parasocial relationship that now people can have with a child or a teenager that's now spurred on by the parents because they're making money on you through your work. This is horrifying. And I, and, and like I said, like these kids are now becoming social media hasn't been around for that long. This hasn't been around for that long. And now there's going to be a, a, some adults, young adults. We're going to come out with stories. are going to be mighty pissed off. This is going to be bad. You're going to see lawsuits probably potentially happen when kids that get older, college age. Hey, where's all that money that you made off me when I was 10 years old? What happened to that money? Why didn't you set any aside for me? This is going to get messy. And finally, news time with Pat. Sesame Street NFTs. Sweet Lord, if there's anything so diametrically opposed, uh, the idea of, of, of grifting Web 3.0 and Sesame Street, I don't know what is. Sesame Street is from Variety to launch fir- first NFTs, starting with Cookie Monster digital collectibles at $60 each. If you ask yourself, who is this for? Uh, congratulations. That's what everyone is asked. Because obviously children can't buy them. <laughs> They're not going to be buying NFTs. Most adults still don't know what the hell an NFT is. Or if they know it, they don't want to get involved because they know it's at this point it's played out. So this is for NFT collectors times any parents that might have children that are into NFTs. I mean, the parents are. Are there any kids into NFTs? That'd be kind of weird. Try to get your kids hooked on something. Obviously, there was backlash to this. They created, let's see, 5,555 editions, priced at $60. It's a short little video. I saw it of it's the Cookie Monster in a little, little animation waiting for cookies by an oven, o- opens up the cookie oven, oven, gets out the cookies, eats them, puts it back in the oven, and it loops. Congratulations. You just spent $60. They're trying to claim the Sesame Workshop that the launch will help fund its mission-driven work to help children everywhere grow smarter, stronger, and kinder while giving its longtime adult fans a new way to showcase their love for Sesame Street's characters. Can you sell a t-shirt? How about some toys? Some Blu-rays or sell a subscription? How about you just sell a subscription to what, HBO first run, gets the first run of Sesame Streets right now? Why don't you just sell that? Something that's actually useful? And also doesn't suck energy out of us and help dis- destroy us slowly because because we have to burn things for energy and stuff. <sighs> we don't have a bunch of renewables right now. We should. We're not there yet. <laughs> Give us another 20 years. Put up those nuclear reactors, damn it. That's actually safe energy overall and clean. So anyway, that's bad. It's bad news. Uh, let's be using... Uh, Immutable X platform, I don't know. Provides instant trade confirmation, high scalability, zero guesses, 99.9% reduction in environmental footprint compared with other technologies. How? 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 Because you're going to plant a tree, and hopefully in 10 years it offsets carbon dioxide. It's kind of bad. 
But what was, what was even sillier was one of the comments to the, to the Twitter thread, and I put this down because it, it ties in with what I kind of do for a living. So a tweet pointing this out was from Muppet History. This is what they said history at History Muppet. Sesame Street was built on helping educate children in lower-income living to give those less privileged the opportunity to learn before entering preschool. This nostalgia-fueled cash grab goes against that ideology ideology entirely, and it's sickening. Someone named Matthew Altruda at Treetown, Treetown Sound, who's a radio host, apparently, has a radio show, tweeted out a picture of the Sesame Street NES games. Which there was three, remember. There was Sesame Street 1, 2, 3, Sesame Street ABC, and then the very uncommon combo of both, one two, ABC and 1, 2, 3. Uncommon game. They literally responded that what's the difference between NES games and an NFT? Okay. Well, before I give my response, Muppet History did a good response. Education video games that provide children with an interactive way to learn various subjects versus a digital doodad. So, the a, an NFT, again, has no use, by and large. And unlike an NES game that those great crusty games will be around a thousand years from now, if you take care of them, NFTs can disappear. The hyperlinks can go bye-bye to the actual asset you're quote-unquote buying when you're just buying a, a place on the blockchain and the servers can go down there's so many things that can go bad with an nft if you actually look at the ownership aspect of it that's it's not like you actually own it like because you can't hold on to it first of all but it can also disappear unlike a physical good that really can't disappear in front of you i mean if you don't have magic can this disappear can i do like a, a trick and like disappear behind my hand this mario party cart so that, on its surface, is, is bad. But the, the NES game can still be used forever if you have a working Nintendo NES and you have a TV. So there's many, there's many, many differences, many differences between an NFT. But, but by the way, for all the people saying that you can use NFT for certain things, whether it's for the games or you know, to, show, to show that you own a digital good, there is yet to be a case study that's been brought to my attention, or as Ian points out, there's yet to be a, yet to be a case study that shows that an NFT can do something where you cannot still do that same thing, like show digital ownership or transfer, transfer ownership that doesn't exist already that you can do. Like, so you can own a digital good right now without an NFT being attached to it, and you can trade them. That all exists right now without being the need to have the blockchain and NFT. So what are you, what are you, what's the case study still? Why do you need this? Well, it's artificial scarcity. That's why you need it. Someone named Cybernetics replied, this decade is going to be a struggle for you if you don't see how digital the world is becoming. We get it. The world is digital. We all carry around cell phones and tablets. You're watching me digitally. NFTs isn't breaking new ground when it comes to the digital landscape. It's not. Going on, Cybernetica says... Or netics, cybernetics. Kids now spend their lives on their phones. Yes, sure. Nothing, nothing to do with NFTs. They understand. They understand how something digital can have value. Do they? Or is that you trying to impart that onto them? Do they? 
digital ownership will be the key to the future of Web3, and this is what NFTs are all about. Of course, when you click on cybernetics, they say crypto NFTs, and then hashtag Bitcoin. These folks that proselytize Web3 have so much money and potential hopes and dreams tied up to it, and that's why they do this. That's all. That's all it is. That's all. I actually got in a semi-argument with someone at a poker game over, over Bitcoin and over crypto. They're saying that, well, everyone that held on for, for crypto for five years made money. I said, that's great. Most of the people didn't for five years, and they lost a ton of money. And for every person gaining money with crypto, someone has to lose a little bit of money because it's all based on volume, and that's it. It doesn't go up until more people get in. Prices don't move with these things unless more people get in. And the people that made the money sell and get out. That's all that. It's, that's how it works, whether it's NFTs or uh, crypto. And then uh, the, the radio show host at Tree Town Sound said facts. These folks try to think that we are the dinosaurs that because we're anti-Web 3.0. Well, they don't realize that tons of people that are anti-Web 3.0 are extremely tech savvy. They come from a, t- a tech background. This isn't like people trying to say, uh, what was the example they said about someone saying that like, email uh, would never be useful. Yeah, there were probably some some old uh, boomers, literal boomers, and older that said 25 years ago that email will never be bigger or the internet will never be big. But I never said that. The internet was awesome when I saw it. And it, it quickly proved to be something. Web3 has, has only been proven to be a, a, a breeding ground for scams, for rug pulls, and for, for jokes. That's all it's been. If you want to say Web3.0 right now is like three years old, Two years old, really? It's been a joke. And it's not just uh, Frank who can't plug in his, his TV to turn it on that would say that. It's me saying that. Someone that used you know, a uh, basic when I was six, seven years old on a computer to run games. Someone that grew up with computers. Uh, you know, I grew up as the internet evolved. Someone that I would consider myself to be tech savvy to a point. You can't just blame older people. Saying that because Web uh, Web three is a is a failure and it showed to be a, a a breeding ground for awfulness. Besides sucking so much energy out of the world that we can't afford to, it's terrible. Sesame Street NFTs. Ugh. Now it's time for what's pestering Pat. What's bothering me? What's been bothering me? Well, speaking of sprouts, I brought up earlier in the podcast. Sprouts bothered me was when um. I had to get back home for something. And usually when you check out, most people that check out their groceries, um, of course, there's the line you can check out yourself. But usually there's a little bit too much when I shop. I only shop once a week. A little bit too many groceries for that for me. Plus, I like talking to the person. Plus, it's more efficient because I get to bag it because I do my own bagging. I was I, I did work in a grocery store growing up. It was my first job. I like to bag efficiently. And so it's like seamless. I'm out. No more than like usually two minutes. Between scanning everything, bagging, paying, two minutes, you're out. Beautiful. People behind you love you. Efficient. The person working the register loves you for helping the bag. We all uh, teamwork makes it, it makes it work, right? What's, what's the expression? I forget the expression. I'm thinking too too quickly sometimes. Teamwork makes the dream work at the grocery store. So I'm in line behind two people. The one lady in front of me probably only has about twenty items. She probably. 15 times, she probably could have went to the self-checkout. And there was two two cashiers. And it was an older lady, but not that old. I want to say 60. 
old enough that she could probably bag her own groceries. I'm not saying she can be lifting uh, 15 pound butter balls, but like she could probably at least bag. She looked hard enough to bag some things. And the problem when you have a big order, and she probably had $200 worth of stuff at least, is that when there's no when there's no designated bagger, the employee, the cashier, has to stop and then bag, and then so there's no system in place. It's it's haphazard. I was ten seconds away because this was taking forever from offering my my expert, in my opinion, grocery bagging services and helping out. The disdain on my face, and probably probably the woman behind me, and probably the person behind me. Because it's the bare minimal effort to bag your own groceries. Plus, you know what? I like to bag my own groceries because also you can bag things like items together. You can bag things together how you put them in the refrigerator. It's just more efficient for your life. Not to say that good cashiers can do that, but if they're in a hurry, well, whatever. Uh, meat with eggs, uh, eggs with cereal, milk. With, like They don't have to care. So I was, I almost said something. Because it it's it's rude. I think it's borderline. It's, it is disrespectful. Help the cashier out who's not making that much money. And plus, I got flashbacks to me being being a cashier. And maybe it's the same thing. Like if when when you're a waiter, where you will you go out of your way go out of your way to treat other waiters uh, better and give them better tips. I guess that's me with cashiers at the grocery store because I worked in a grocery store and it was a tough job. I got paid five or five an hour in Jersey at Food Town and. If someone bagged for me, oh, it was the best thing ever. I it was like the I love them. Instead of people saying, "Oh, paper in plastic," remember it was paper or plastic? Paper in plastic, great. Make my 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 life four times as hard. And then they watch you bag eight hundred dollars worth of groceries. So anyway, and the line just grows and grows. So that bothered me. The other thing that bothered me that's been making the rounds on the internet as a meme has been. The god awful Pfizer commercial for Pax Lovid. Can I play this real quick? Let me play the first first bit here for you. COVID nineteen and being overweight makes it more risky. I'm calling my doctor. If it's COVID, Pax Lovid. Authorized for emergency use, Paxlovid is an oral treatment for people 12 and up who have mild to moderate COVID nineteen and have a high risk factor for it becoming severe. <clears throat> My symptoms are mild now, but I'm not waiting. If it's COVID, Paxlovid. That's enough for now. And it goes on for literally another minute. It's a minute and a half commercial, the full commercial. All right. Pfizer is one of the big three. There's what? There's four or five vaccines that I know about. Russia did one. There's an AstraZeneca one. There's a Johnson & Johnson one shot. And Pfizer and Moderna are the, are the two, two major ones here. I've, I've done mostly Moderna. I think my first shot was Pfizer. And the booster, and the last two after that were uh, Moderna. So, so Pfizer does this commercial. They put out this. This is an oral uh, oral pill. This is a pill to treat your symptoms that you can get prescribed. It's emergency. It's not even FDA approved yet. It's under emergency approval authorization uh, to do this. So, I'm not going to talk about the efficacy of this drug. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure. I'm, I'm hoping it works uh, for people. I've heard it does. I have a friend, I believe, I think my friend got on something after getting COVID that helped him. And this probably was it, because I don't think there's a lot of things that can be prescribed right now. It's the pithy 
little saying in this commercial that annoys me. If it's COVID, Paxlovid. And it annoys me now that it's stuck in my head. And this is why marketing is marketing because I hate it, but I'll never forget it. And it works. So there have been in three years time, a little over three years in the U.S. alone, there have been over 1.1 million COVID-19 deaths, 1.1 million. That's the CDC number. I'm not going to argue with you. If you're going to dispute those numbers, then whatever, then you can argue against the fucking wall. I'll believe the CDC numbers when it comes to that. If you don't believe those numbers, you can look up something called the excess death number, which tracks normally year to year, the average people that die. And then, wow, what a coincidence. When COVID came along, there has been this many excess deaths the past three years that lines up pretty fucking close to the COVID-19 deaths. So if it wasn't COVID-19, what the hell was it? Anyway, the rational people, you still listen to me? You still listen to me? Um, over 1.1 million deaths, and that's undercounted, by the way. I looked at a BU study, Boston University study, that said that could be undercounted potentially up to up to three, 400,000. So it might be 1.5. It's over a million in three years. That's the bottom line. Besides, who knows how many tens of thousands of people have a, the long-term, what they call the long COVID which occurs, I believe the numbers between 10 and 20% of people that get COVID have symptoms that last several months later, if not a year or two later, because it, it, it attacks your, your brain. With some people, some people have never regained their sense of smell or taste, or it takes a very long time. It scars your, your lungs. You can't breathe pro- properly months later. Things like that. It's, it's a nasty fucking drug, uh, disease. It's not the flu. It's not, it's not the cold. There's no long cold that I know about. There's no long flu. You get the flu, you're usually better in a week. You get the cold, you're better, you know, in a week, and that's it. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, affect your life several months later, like COVID potentially can. So I know Pfizer has to market this drug. I'm not, I'm not anti-pharmaceutical companies. I'm not. On the surface, overall, it's a net positive for the universe. Uh, pharmaceuticals, Western medicine. Net positive. That's how I try to look at things like an older. Is a net positive or a net, net negative? There's there's a lot of nuances. Things. Obviously, a lot of the pharmaceutical companies are awful, and they, and they charge too much for drugs, and they charge too much for insulin and things like that. A lot of that's traced also back to, to the insurance companies here and whatever. I'm not going to get into the conversation. That's, that's, that's convoluted and complex. But I will say this. When you have a disease, Pfizer, when you have a disease, and this is the Pfizer marketing department, when a disease that's been horrific, that's torn us apart, Changed the way we literally have lived the last few years. Over a million, well over a million dead from it. Can you not come up with a cute little fucking slogan for your drug? Can you do something a little bit more? I don't want to call it mature. A little bit, a little bit just like, hey, you know, COVID has has been bad for us. It sucked. And we got this little, little prescription medicine you can take. I wouldn't have a problem with that. I wouldn't be yelling about it now like a madman. I wouldn't be foaming out the mouth. But the marketing department that was probably doing high fives when they said, hey, Paxlovid, it rhymes with COVID. If it's COVID, Paxlovid. That's great, Brad. Glad you thought of that. I like It makes it just... It, oh, God. I, I'm ashamed that it worked. 
because I'm talking about it. You've probably have, have seen the memes about it. It's annoying. And then the guy in the commercial is like, "Oh, I'm I'm taking I'm taking uh, Paxlovid. I'm good now. I'm now recovering from COVID, and I'm sh- uh, I'm putting golf balls into a cup in my living room on the carpet. Back to normal. What can I say? It worked. It's freaking Pfizer. It's time for you talk to Pat. You can go to anchor.fm slash not so common. You can click message and you can leave me a voice message on your phone or computer. Access the microphone. You know, make sure the microphone is, I can hear you and keep the message short. Like 20 seconds is a sweet spot for that. And a couple, a few people left a message, but I'm sure in a future not so common episode, there'll be more. This is the, the first one here. Hey, Pat. I've always enjoyed hearing you talk about the Feast of the Seven Fishes. Is there another celebratory meal maybe growing up or one that you still take part in today that might be similar that you enjoy? Thanks. That's from Ryan. Thanks, Ryan, for that. Um, off the top of my head, there isn't. Easter, there's usually an Easter meal growing up you would do, which you have like a ham, but then if you're Italian, you got a ham, and then you got it to have like uh, manicotti or stuffed shells. That was really it growing up, but you would do Sunday gravy, which I guess is a term that you, the Italian Americans would have where, Hey, it's Sunday. You have supper. We call it, we call it supper. We go to grandma's for supper, which means you go there at like one o'clock or you go, no, you go there like at noon and you eat at like two or three. So you eat like in the mid afternoon. Brilliant. I love the idea. So you basically skip lunch. You have, a, you have a breakfast back then before intermittent fasting existed back in the you know eighties and nineties. You have a breakfast. Then you hold out until like mid afternoon. You have a big, you have your big meal. That was great. It was then grandma would make her sauce, her gravy, her meat sauce. She'd make her brajol, a little sausage, and make her good meatballs with uh, the pignoli nuts. I like it with the pignoli nuts. Raisins I can do without grandma, but pignoli nuts are good. The pine nuts, a little salad. You have your dessert. Mouth is watering. That's basically the tradition. So we would do that. Some points in my life, at, at least once a month, you would do that. Where it'd be my father. And my uncle, his brother. So you have the, the two families on the one side besides my grandparents, which is like, what is that? Pat Math. Four, six. It's like nine or ten people. Nine people. Nine people. And then maybe you, you get a couple of the extended relatives. Well, like, let's say about 10, 11 people on average. Ten people. That's what we do. Uh, springtime, we would do it every other week. We would do that sometimes. At least once a month. I remember, the, I remember those rides home like it was yesterday. There was like two different routes we would take coming home. There was the, the the parkway and the back roads, and then we would time it, we'd see which one was quicker, me and my sister. Remember that like it was yesterday. You, you'd go over at like 1 or 2, you come home at like maybe 7 or 8 o'clock at night, you go to school the next day, uh, fat and happy because you had so much pasta and carbs in your belly and meatballs. <laughs> hey, Pat. Sweet and tender hooligan here. I was just wondering when you and Ian are going to react to Tommy Tellerico's personal message video he made about you guys. And I was also wondering what you found the most offensive that he said about you guys over the years. And, okay, thank you for destroying the Amico. Bye. So the question is, when will we do the video responding to Tommy? It's coming soon. Ian and I, we have a date set down on my calendar. Coming soon. You'll see that. You'll see that by early April, I would say. You will see that video. By the latest, by early April. You shall. You shall see that. Uh, and then the most, the thing that, that bothered me most about Tom is when he said things that were, I mean, making fun of my hair and he made fun of Ian's medical issues a little bit. Uh, what, what, 
what upset me personally when he talked about me um, was when he would say things like, I lost friends over the Amico, which is totally false. And I called him, I remember I called him a pig. So one time I really use a word like that, like, because that really shows just how in the fucking below the mud you are when you make a personal lies about someone because your business is failing, because you realize you're going to be a joke in the industry if this fails, and the fact that you're a charlatan and a thief and a scammer, Tommy Tallarico, and you went out and tried to claim that I lost friends because of the Amico. Didn't happen. I got more backpacks and... and th- Good job, Pat's more than anything else, Ian and I. No no friends lost. That really, yeah, that was the most bothersome. And the fact that he said that, like, um, what do you say? That I met him one time and I tried to, like, he, he he said I wanted to kiss his ring. No, didn't happen. And plus, I met Tommy three times, which showed, like, he doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. Met him three different times and was always respectful to him. We had, I, I had a five, ten-minute conversation with him about NES audio programming and, and the demo that was discovered for Color of Dinosaur in front of the uh, Mega 64 booth at Comic-Con several years ago well, with his wife standing there who I met. She seemed okay. I don't, I don't know where she is now. Maybe maybe, maybe you burnt uh, that bridge, Tommy. Who knows? Oh, hi. This is uh, the Peter from uh, up in the Canada. And do you ever just not have like a good relationship with some people sometimes merely based on the fact that your schedules don't line up. Yeah, it has happened from time to time. When when I um when I was dating someone seriously uh before the pandemic, we both had busy lives. Um both were I mean, she worked for the Navy, high stress job, sometimes was gone for a day and a half doing stuff with the Navy, like where she, she had to be on call. And then, you know, I was doing my stuff with the podcast, the you know the books. Uh, I'm I, I I work every day almost. I mean I I I literally work every day. It's just how many hours a day I will work. Whether it's seven seven hours one day, five hours another day, three hours today. Like today, this is work technically. I'm going to be editing this, and then also uh, I worked on the book before. So and this is a Sunday when I'm recording this. So that combined with someone else having a tough schedule it makes it tough i mean obviously but if you like or love someone enough you will set aside the time to be listen what's we have to schedule it's like it's like it's work we have to schedule time together obviously if you're with someone in a relationship you have to do that but with friends it can be similar it should be and it's and i've i've failed in, in that regard i there's someone that i don't want to say i pushed them away but there was someone that made inroads to try to hang out with me more and I was busy or I couldn't do it a few times. And they stopped asking me. And that's nothing. And that's, I'm not even faulting him for that. Because I would stop asking me too. It can happen. And it's not to say you can't always, uh, you know, try to bridge those those uh, lifestyle differences in terms of work and, and things of that nature. But you, it takes a concerted effort. If you want it, you'll do it. That's what it comes down to with, with relationships. Or any other personal personal responsibility. We all we all lead busy lives to some aspects, to some a point or another. But you can make time for whatever you want. Whether it's hey, I want to make time to learn a new hobby, to learn a new language. I I, I take time fifteen minutes every day to do Duolingo app, um, to learn Spanish, take time to exercise. You can find time for these things if you if you want to make it a priority to do so. It's just whether or not you're willing to do that. Whether or not you're willing to like treat it as a discipline of something that, hey, I'm going to set a time we're going to do this. And it might, it might sound weird to do something social like that, but if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. 
if you have to set aside an hour to, to hang out with someone and you said you make those plans a week in advance, do it. If it's important, if that person is important to you and you want to, you want to build something, you got to do it. And maybe I have to do that in the future myself. Maybe I will start slowing down. I was planning to slow down before the pandemic actually was, I was going to take time off. I was probably going to take time off from the podcast. I never, I don't think I said that before. Uh, see your pockets at time. I probably would, would force to take time off to take a little sabbatical for at least a month or two. And also I had no book going on, but the pandemic changed the world. I was like, well, I can't really travel. So I might as well start this book that I'm still working on now. That's been hell on earth. And that's what brings it full circle. And this has been not so common with Pat Contry. You can follow me on Twitter at Pat Contry or Pat the NES punk. I'm on Instagram and Twitch at Country Code. Every Wednesday, I stream 80s, 90s, 70s commercials that people like. It's a good time. We do it for two or three hours on Wednesday, usually around 3 to 4 we start, 3 to 4 Pacific. That's like 6 to 7 Eastern we start doing that. And I'll be at the SoCal Gaming Expo. That's May 6th and May 7th in Ontario, California. Thanks, everyone. I appreciate the support. Oh, you can also, hey, if you want to see these early and other good works, you can follow me on Patreon, patreon.com slash Pat Country. We'll see you again real soon. Take care. Be nice to everyone. <laughs>